Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, welcome to HealthScape. It is commonly agreed that mostly women bear the brunt of ongoing family care and due diligence. This demanding daily routine results in their own needs invariably taking backseat to, well, usually everyone else's in their care circle. When feeling ill, for example, even a teenager, girl or boy, will automatically target mom. Dad most often having been given a much wider berth. I'm thinking they know something. In the words of Joseph Conrad, being a woman is a difficult task, not the least, because it consists principally of dealing with men. Today's discussion is about women's midlife challenges as detailed in an excellent book, Rock Your Midlife, Seven Steps to Transform Yourself and Make Your Next Chapter Your Best Chapter. Written by Dr. Ellen Albertson for women approaching middle age, there is certainly a lot that is also applicable to men. These are life changes after all. And one could just as easily add that it's essential reading for men as well, and not solely in order to understand their partner. Having not only read and savored the book, but also having made notes, I can tell you that it is a treasure trove of helpful evidence-based detail with a healthy mix of sound kitchen table advice nuggets, motivational gems, and a memorable type of humor that I am almost tempted at this early stage to call Ellenisms. A brief biography follows. Dr. Ellen is a psychologist, registered dietitian, national board certified health and wellness coach, radio talk show host, Reiki master, and mindful self-compassion teacher. Known as the quote, midlife whisperer, she helps women have the energy, confidence, and clarity they need to make the next chapter in their lives their best chapter. A best-selling, award-winning author, inspirational speaker, and expert on women's well-being, Dr. Ellen has appeared on Extra, The Food Network, and NBC World News, and has been quoted in Psychology Today, Forbes, Eating Well, and USA Today. She has written for Self, Better Homes and Gardens, and Good Housekeeping. Her latest book is Rock Your Midlife, Seven Steps to Transform Yourself and make your next chapter your best chapter. She brings over 30 years of counseling, coaching, and healing experience to her holistic practice and transformational work. She lives on the Champlain Islands of Vermont with her high-tech, raw food-loving partner, Ken, and her tree-climbing border collie, Rosie. Welcome, Ellen. So good to have you here on Healthscape. Thank you, Trevor. So fantastic to be here. And thank you for that sweet introduction. I am so glad that you found value in the book. And I love the, the thought of Ellenism. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was it was certainly um, a great distillate of, 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 of an incredible amount of wisdom in my view. So I think a good starting question, Ellen, is while it is clear that your own experiences obviously enabled you to write so seamlessly 
and insightfully about this topic. What early life experiences do you believe helped shape and influence this book? Well, I have been working with midlife women for the last 30 years. So even before I was at midlife myself, I started my career in health and wellness as a registered dietitian nutritionist. And so all of the people coming to me really primarily midlife women wanting help with things like weight loss, high cholesterol, diabetes, those types of things. And so pretty much through my whole 30 year career in health and wellness, I've always been interested in working with midlife women and they've always been attracted to working with me. And then of course, going through my own midlife. So I'm sort of at the kind of, I think I'm going through this, the stickiest part of it, getting to the end of that and having experienced a lot of changes, everything from divorce, health crisis, certainly COVID, dealing with, you know, growing kids, um, elderly parents, all of those things. I have a much greater understanding of what it's like to come out the other end and how beautiful that transformation can be. And I've also worked with hundreds of women at midlife at this point. And so I've had a lot of experience. And I think looking at my own mom and also kind of seeing how we are redefining midlife, um, particularly for women, I'm more engaged in the female space. And, you know, I remember when my mom was going through it, there wasn't a lot of conversation about it. We didn't, you know, she didn't talk about menopause or empty nest. And uh, certainly baby boomers and, and really Gen X women are coming out and saying, hey, we're going through something and we want to talk about it. So I think it's a really exciting time to be shining a light on this very vibrant transitional period of life. Absolutely. I would, couldn't agree with you more. People are, are becoming more realistic about their own lives, I think, um, you know, just like we're here for a season, as we're reminded by great texts, but um, but one really has to has to make the most of it, and and you you know it's it's come it's the time has come. So I, I think that's great. But we're um, also living longer too, so that's a big piece uh, of it. You know, yes. we're living into uh, the the lifespan for women, average lifespan in the states is eighty one. So when you think about midlife, you've got this whole juicy second adulthood to really make the most of it. Absolutely true. I can remember. I don't think of myself as old, but I, I can remember at school when somebody's grandfather retired at sixty five. It was a couple or three years later that they died. And that was kind of while well, they've retired and, you know, they in their 60s. And I'm thinking, can we talk about this a bit yeah. more? <laughs> anyway, um, what exactly does midlife madness, as you call it, refer to the book? Because you also later mentioned it, a midlife miracle. So paradoxical, of course. But, um, yeah, if you could just opine on that, that would be good to hear. Thanks. Yeah, there's a lot going on at midlife. So, you know, certainly for women, we have the physiological change of, of going through perimenopause, and that can cause a lot of body, mind, heart, spirit changes. Uh, we are facing, you know, looking at our life and kind of reevaluating things. There's also relationships are changing. Not a, not a day goes by that I don't work with a midlife woman who is dealing with uh, empty nests. As women, we, as you refer to, you know, we're the caregivers. We get so much of our self-definition from 
taking care of grandkids, kids, parents, peers. And so that all the relationships are shifting. And, you know, there's a lot of, of issues around finding balance, finding work-life balance, finding time for yourself. And so it can be a, a challenging period that, you know, idea of madness, because there's so much going on. There's so many mm -hmm. people in your life. You're trying to manage your health. And it's, you know, I'm sure you've seen as a physician, midlife is the time where health issues start to rear their head. So, you know, yeah. maybe you were fine in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and then you start to hit 40 and you start to realize, oh my gosh, my blood sugar's out of whack, my blood cholesterol, you're paying attention to those things, aches and pains. So there's just a lot to be dealing with. Plus a lot of people are also dealing with financial issues. Right. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount that we are juggling, which can kind of lead to that idea of feeling like you're going a little crazy or you're just feeling overwhelmed by everything that's coming at you. Yeah, and come to think of it, something as wonderful as a miracle, the birthing is going to be painful. So I guess it makes complete sense. Um, in the foreword, you talk about Brene, Brene Brown referring to it not as a crisis, but more of an unraveling. Um, it seems that as we live longer, we're also learning quite definitively that our social and behavioral scripts have a sell-by date or a shelf life, right? Yes, um, I think that is something, you know, we start to see, and I think, you know, Brene Brown writes about midlife so beautifully, and it's not a crisis. You know, this idea of midlife crisis was coined by a Canadian psychologist in 1965, really to refer to what we think about as the kind of stereotypical male, you know, buying the convertible and having the affair. And the reality for women is it's more like an unraveling. And I love that metaphor that she uses because I think about the, um, the building a chrysalis, right? So going from right. caterpillar to butterfly, where you do, you've got that silk strand and what are you going to, Mm -hmm. you know, unravel and then reweave. So it's this, yes, it's unraveling, but then it's also this reweaving of what are you going to do as you're going through this, this transformation, transformation, I think, as you said, like with birth, it's, it's messy. Mm -hmm. um, if you've, you know, the caterpillar going to the butterfly is not a pretty yeah. thing that the caterpillar literally digests right. itself um, to become the butterfly and it needs to struggle to get free. So at midlife, um, it is, it's not a crisis you think about as sort of this short lived thing, but it's really more of an unraveling. It's a longer period of time um, that, that takes place. So it's not sort of the, we need to get away from that stereotypical thing, which is it's so interesting when you Google midlife, it is conjoined with crisis. Mm -hmm. And if you put it in thesaurus, the only thing that comes up is the wrong side of 40. So there's a lot of work to be right. done about redefining this time period. Right. No, no, absolutely. Um, it, it is, it, it's something that needed a rework and it's obviously getting it now to, to a way greater degree than ever before. Now, this process obviously refers to change, a massive change over so many fronts, actually every aspect of life one would venture, biological, psychological, spiritual, social, attitudinal, which is part of all, all of the above, I suppose. How, in your view, how have societal viewpoints and expectation regarding it morphed over, say, the last three decades, two decades? Well, I think the, the most morphing has really happened probably more in the last decade. 
Um, And particularly right now, we're seeing so much of it because I think partially it's social media. So social media has given everybody an opportunity to be their own creator. So you can go on Instagram and, and if you're interested in midlife, you can put in hashtag midlife and you will see, you know, women of various ages, sizes, races, uh, being feeling beautiful, sharing their truth. And so, you know, social media gives us an opportunity to decide who we want to see and see regular people. So I think what's starting to happen is used to be, and it, it's still to some extent that, you know, 50% of the population is kind of in this midlife, post midlife, and we only see 15% of people in, you know, ads in the media represented, whether it's, you know, movies or commercials, but that's starting to shift primarily because, as, as midlifers, we really um, control a lot of the disposable income, right? So, and, and we're demanding that we be seen. We're demanding that, you know, doctors start to find solutions for our midlife problems. So I would say that I've seen a, a huge change, particularly in the last five or so years, even the last year or two, so many books about menopause, more and more books about midlife. Whereas, you know, a decade ago, I, we weren't, we just weren't talking about, it. I've even seen a change since, you know, myself, I'm 59. And when I was sort of in my forties and, and, you know, approaching 50, there really wasn't as much of this space talking about midlife as there is now. I mean, there's so many podcasts about it. People are talking about it and are demanding more information and, and sharing what they're going through. Right. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. It's certainly a much more of an open topic. I mean, we think it's there's not to say it's it's all that connected. Although obviously it can be a time when people are depressed. But a while back, uh, thirty years ago, people didn't admit to depression. It was it was so stigmatized, and so it was never dealt with. It's only when we bring things open out into the open, obviously, that we can fully examine and have the necessary conversations. So I, I think your, your work among others has done a wonderful service and will continue to do so. Um, in your view, what is the most important barrier to becoming unstuck in a situation? Because there's a, there's a lot, you write a lot about the guilt people feel, the, the fear of change, um, of acceptance, identity, all these very, very powerful things. And I know how powerful identity is in chronic pain management. It's, it, it sort of transcends even severe symptoms, the sense of loss of self. Um, what, what, what do you think if you had to tease out one particular biggie, if you like the word, um, just uh, you know, that that is most problematic based on, on the group of women or, or the, the women you see. Well, you hit on it when you said, you know, fear of change. I would say that 99% of the people who come to me are what I term comfortably uncomfortable. I had one client and she described it like, I'm wearing a really big, heavy bare skin, you know, mm-hmm. blanket. And it's kind of comfortable, but it's also uncomfortable. And that's because if we, you know, look at the neuroscience of this, our brains are not interested in us being happy, being fulfilled, you know, finding our truth and our passion and purpose. Our brains are interested in keeping us safe and change uncertainty to your brain 
signals that this is an unsafe, an unsafe space to go into. So for example, I have a lot of women who, you know, won't want to leave a career that they hate because they, they're afraid, what am I going to do? And how am I going to deal with the, that paycheck issue? Or I'm going to stay in a uh, marriage that I really wish I wasn't in either because I'm scared to do my taxes or, um, you know, I'm worried that I'll, I'll be all alone. Mm -hmm. So we have these fears and we, this is, you know, we've got this primitive part of our brain, the amygdala, that right. is constantly looking for danger, trying to keep us safe. And then we also have the default mode network, which runs down the middle of our brain, which is constantly scanning the, you know, the world for uh, danger as well as self-definition. And I think, you know, you raised the point about the pain management, like how do we step out and give out, give some space for a new way to identify ourselves so that we can uh, open up to opportunities. Mm -hmm. You know, especially at this time in an of shockingly fast um, change, you know, how many people will move across state lines, countries and so forth, how many times, how many times they'll change their jobs, how many times they'll change their careers. I mean, what was once regarded as a blue chip or career like law or accountancy or medicine or psychology is, is not necessarily proving to be the way practitioners in those professions view it, right, clearly. So it's, it's actually, this made me think, and I'm thinking, well, given my age, why am I only pondering it now? But it's actually shocking that we would be comfortable with somebody close to us and whom we love that is that is constantly uncomfortable. I mean, at a workplace, for example, you say if you're comfortable with sending an email, I mean, you know, well, in the kind of modern workplace, I'm talking about North America and probably Europe, I suspect, you you, you make sure the person isn't uncomfortable. And yet we'll see people mothers, um, sisters, partners, whatever, you know, whomever, I should say, um, toiling and this hardship, it's almost like the myth of Sisyphus, you know, roll the rock up mm -hmm. every day to watch it yeah. go down. And, and often with, well, I won't say there's never gratitude, there often is actually, but because it's happening daily, don't expect it on a daily basis. And, 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 and I'm not suggesting any woman does. But it, it's, it's kind of a tough act. And I don't mean it in the act, act sense, maybe a bad choice of word, but it's a tough routine. And I think I need to, I read, read the book in like probably two days, um, which was good because then you digest the book well. And it's in your, the information is right up against your face. You've got to say it, but you know, there were times I knew my mom was tired and she'd bake things and, you know, and perhaps she was a great mother, by the way, she still is. But you kind of see there could have been a bit of leeway, even from myself as a child or a young child. So it's certainly very sobering. And um, yeah, it, it, it was very eye-opening for me. At an at well, a, at older age. Um, yes, I think that we're learning. I mean, I think a big piece of the book, my my sixth step in the book, is rehabbing relationships. And yes, uh, as women, you know, we're really taught to be people pleasers. I know that was my case, and I think that's one reason you sort of alluded to changing of careers. I'll meet people across all kinds of careers. You know, physicians, lawyers, 
all, all sorts of things. And they'll, they'll be, I don't want to do this anymore because we are trying to please people. So often we go into a career because we're pleasing somebody else or it's what society says success means. And we're kind of crawling up this ladder of success, but it's up against the wrong building. Or as you had alluded to, you know, we're, we're baking, you know, we're making cakes when we're exhausted because it's what we think is expected of us, mm -hmm. but we really do have a choice. And the bottom line, this is what the second you know step in rock your midlife is loving yourself um, really means filling your own cup first. And as yes. women, as you said earlier, you know, we feel guilty. I see this with my clients all the time. We will start to put together a self-care plan and they'll get stressed out about it because when they start to say no to the, the kids and the grandkids um, and even work, they start worrying, well, what are people going to think about me? Are they going to love me? And, and the reality of it is, particularly with your family, your family wants you to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you can't give from an empty cup. So if you take care of yourself, if you say, you know what, I don't need to make those scones. I can, you know, they can eat toast or I don't need to, um, you know, sometimes I have, we have, we have popcorn and cut of vegetables and hummus for dinner. You don't need, I remember my mother would, she'd have a big dinner party and then she'd be sitting there making this fancy three course meal for we children, you know, and she was always, there was always a great meal on the table. Everything was done. The sort of need to be this perfect, I think that sort of fifties idea, right. That a lot of us grew yes. up sort of fifties, sixties of things are supposed to be a certain way. And we get so much of our information from media and we, you know, we would see, see families and how things are supposed to be. And now I think women, you know, hopefully the book is empowering women to say, I don't need to do that. I mean, I had a client this morning and I was like, well, why don't you ask your teenager to do the dishes? Her dishwasher had broken. And she's like, well, I didn't have time to go for a walk because the dishwasher broke. And I said, leave the dishes yes. and have your kid do it. But we think right. we, you know, we have to do everything. And there isn't really, if we take care of everybody else and not ourselves, that's when, you know, you talked a little bit about depression. I feel like depression sometimes the only um, card that women have to pull at midlife to, to stop. It's a hard stop where you're like, I can't do this anymore. And that's when sort of you, your mood really gets depressed and you have to stop or you burn out. And, you know, I, both I, of which are not good outcomes. Yeah, I, I've just, you know, talking about baking in the fifties, I got a picture from the movie, uh, The Hours. I'm sure you might've seen, you probably saw, saw it. Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep and Julianne Moore. And it's about various people in various countries flashing back. The long and short of it is Julianne Moore is the Stepford wife in 50s LA, just baking cakes and looking <laughs> at everyone. And it turns out in the story, she actually leaves her family. And, um, you know, it comes out when she finally is confronted. She's an, she's an advanced age. And she says, I know I'm not well thought of and people hate me, but I chose life. And the minute she says that, you it, it rushes back as in any good movie the insight of she basically that was her her big i'm not saying it's 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 a good thing or you know if you see the circumstances all i'm saying is you get this rush of understanding that it's really an identity and about one's own life in order to change hers was extreme it was drastic as i say this is art we're talking about, but it, it was very memorable. Sorry, I just had to say that because no, was, that's you know. movies are, are great, uh, you know, great for us to understand this. I, I recently saw The Bridges of Madison County. I don't know if you've seen it with um, oh, yes, Meryl Streep, yes. and oh my gosh, I'm having a senior moment. Um, 
Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood, thank you. Yeah, you know, yeah. where she has an affair and it's right. like she never did a thing for herself and she gave her life and to her family. And that was her decision. And I think, you know, I think the movie takes place in like 1965. Um, but, you know, there is that sense. And, and now it's 2022 and we don't have to stay in the relationship that isn't working. We don't have to stay in the job that isn't working. We don't have to stay, stay in the bodies, the mindset, whatever it is, we have right. choices. Um, and that's what the book is about. I think the, the cool thing about the book is if you're feeling stuck, you can start with any of the seven steps. For me, Absolutely. the self-love yeah, step yeah. was the thing that shifted everything, but there's mm -hmm. so much that you can do to figure out how to move forward and to create a great next chapter. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, so just a brief uh, pause for a commercial pray, uh, break. We'll be right back. This is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, uh, speaking with uh, Dr. Ellen Albertson. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues, which help trigger and drive the chronic pain, are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy, and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. This is Dr. Trevor Campbell, your host on Healthscape. I'm, I'm talking with Dr. Ellen Albertson, psychologist, about her book, um, Mid uh, Rock Your Midlife, Seven Steps to Transform Yourself and Make Your Next Chapter Your Best Chapter. Right, so... Um, in your view, what is the commonest reason for failing once people embark on this process? Uh, when, no, when it, it's, but specifically, sorry, I mean, you meant to add specifically when it comes to reinventing oneself in a more authentic way. Is it yeah. pressure yeah. or what? Yeah, I would say... Um, Honestly, I don't see, you know, failure is part of the process. So I think we need mm. to reframe that. Right. If you're going to do the caterpillar to butterfly thing, the metamorphosis, you know, fa failure is, I think the only failure would be stopping. You know, if you feel right. like I'm, I'm getting off, I'm going back to my old way of being, 
but you're going to fail. I mean, I have failed spectacularly over the last couple of decades. I mean, failure, I think we need to reframe that is yes. that's how we learn. That's how we grow. Um, it brings us to this idea in self-compassion of common humanity where everybody fails, everybody makes mistakes. It's part of the human condition. I would say that, you know, the biggest failures I see are when people go back to their old tapes and their old, old ways of being, mm -hmm. as opposed to this, it's kind of like, okay, I've, I've had a little bit of a taste of being the butterfly, but I'm going to go back to that caterpillar. I'm going to kind of like reverse cocoon myself and go backwards. So I would really say the only failure would be not moving forward with your life, refusing to change when the, you know, when you are feeling stuck and you're feeling like my life is not where I want it to be. I don't like, I don't look forward to my life, my days, um, not doing anything what I would be for me, the only failure you could make, but you're going to make, you know, you're going to make mistakes as you move forward. And that's really the only way you figure out what to do next. Yeah, no, it's very much what I tell against to bring chronic pain in. It's obviously a process and there are setbacks, but the best, I mean, all one can really expect from someone else is to bring their best for that day. So if it's a terrible day, obviously one's output and efforts are not gonna be up to standard or up to par rather with what one normally brings. It's a marathon and a process, I guess, right? So um, just keep going, keep trucking as they used to say in the 60s. Um, yeah, move forward. Now, um, for these categories, these changes to become durable, clearly, they need to be made at the neuroplastic, the brain level, where the brain changes itself under certain conditions, much like in the learning process, as we know. But this, of course, you point out, comes with time, repetition, and practice, like learning itself. What preparatory work needs to be done? If you could just address that for us, please. Yeah, I would say, uh... One of the things that I talk about in the book is, you know, working on your mindset, uh, mm. certainly working on your mindfulness, which means learning to uh, be present with your present experience. And that is so important because when you are mindful, what happens is you turn off that default mode network that we talked about earlier in the program that's mm -hmm. constantly scanning for what could be wrong. So a prepare, a thing to prepare, you know, would be to start a mindfulness practice, whether that means meditating, whether that means you know, starting to doing something like yoga, body mind practice, taking long walks in the woods, doing some activities in your life where you're totally present. And that helps you to have more of kind of the observer perspective on yourself. You can kind of step outside yourself a little bit. And right. it also helps you deal with a lot of things like, you know, pain, stress, anxiety, that you're, you're not going into suffering mode when you're, when you're aware and you're into a, a, a mindful acceptance of what is happening and you bring in that element of self-compassion, you know, there's pain, but you're not, when you can release some of that with acceptance, you don't go right into the suffering. So there's this need to kind of, I think, you know, intention setting that I'm, I'm intending for my life to be different. I don't know what that looks like. I'm intending to show up and be more mindful mm -hmm. to really change my old um, habits and ways of being to work on your mindfulness, um, as well as work on your relationship with yourself. I can't tell you how many clients when I ask yeah. them the question, how's your relationship with yourself? And they're like, 
what's that? We have a relationship <laughs> with ourselves yeah. From, yeah, from the, from the moment we wake up to the moment, from the moment we come into this world to the moment we leave, we're with ourselves and other relationships come and go. But that relationship is so, so important. And the self-compassion piece is, is really, really vital. And self-compassion really means treating yourself the way that you would a good friend, being there for yourself, you know, all the time. Um, super important. I know a lot of your audience, you know, is dealing with chronic pain, but the, the research around self-compassion, chronic pain, self-compassion and mm. optimism and growth is huge. It works both ends of the spectrum. Okay. So self-compassion reduces um, depression, anxiety, and stress, but it also increases optimism, well-being, happiness, resilience. So I would say, develop a mindful self-compassion practice. That's a great way to start. Also getting some maybe new friends. I mean, we are so influenced by the people that we spend the most time with. See if you can find some other people on your journey who can support you. Maybe, you know, finding a coach or a therapist to help you deal with some of your stumbling blocks. You don't have to go through this midlife transformation by yourself. Yeah, correct. No, I, I, I totally agree. You know, we talk about we we grow up to believe that our primary uh, relationship will be with someone of our choice, eventually spouse, partner, whatever the arrangement is. But really, the primary relationship is is your foundation because a bad self relationship can can really well will impede other relationships. It's so foundational. And yet there's this uh, maybe um, religious overlay that, you know, you should be selfless. That doesn't mean you should not have self-love. I think it's, it's more of a caveat for self-obsession or, you know, placing yourself always first, which is obviously not the problem in, in, in midlife challenges for women. Uh, it, I mean, it, it is the issue that needs to be addressed. So I, I agree wholeheartedly because too often we we not we not going from a firm footing, and until that's established, uh, of course the metaphor always used here is the oxygen mask in the airplane. Even before you apply to a young child, you've got to secure your own because that'll that will secure sound behaviors from from you for for whatever else crops up. Um, yes, and it's also self, you know, self-love, self-compassion, self-care right. isn't selfish. It's not that you're putting yourself no. in front of other people or saying I'm more important. What you're saying is I'm including myself in this circle of, of well-being that if my well-being is not at a high level, I won't have energy, you know, to take care of anyone else. And also realizing too, that the more I love myself, the, and the more I have compassion for myself, the more I have compassion for other people. It is really true that, you know, if you don't have compassion for yourself, it is really hard to have that kind of energy with other mm -hmm. people in your life. So we do need to get away from this idea that caring for ourselves is selfish and feeling guilty when we do take time out for ourselves, because it's not serving us. Um, guilt is a productive emotion if it gets you to change your behavior, but there is nothing wrong with doing things to, that make you feel good and support your well-being. Right. Yeah. No, for sure. Uh, to, to drum up motivation, you, what am I doing it and for whom? For me, well, 
it's 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 sort of undermotivated in the end it will become undermotivated um now you speak very profoundly and passionately about spirituality which happens to be an interest uh, a major interest of mine i feel it's a grossly neglected but constantly available oasis that people need to discover if they haven't before or rediscover or dig up if it's buried so I really enjoyed those parts tremendously. When one gets the sense that spirituality is not only a great driver for these changes that are very necessary in order to deal with the midlife challenges, but that enhanced spirituality itself is, is among the rewards of having had the courage to affect these changes. Do you find this a common finding or a constant finding? Well, I would say um, it does really help with these changes because the bottom line with spirituality is finding meaning and purpose in your life, right. finding things that you are passionate about and and connecting with your own spiritual nature. I think that you know conventional religion always sort of puts God outside of one and finding that divinity within yourself and that connection that yes. you are part of all that is. Uh, and I think that discovering that at midlife really is, is such an incredible strength that can help you to move forward, to make a difference in the world, to be kinder to yourself and others, to really, you know, change your own trajectory and mm -hmm. have more wisdom and direction. And also, let's face it, right now, the world is a mess. And is, as the Dalai Lama mm -hmm. says, the world will be saved by Western women. You know, we as midlife women, we think that, you know, we're invisible, we don't have any power, but the reality of it is, is that we influence up to four generations. We influence grandkids, kids, our mm -hmm. peers, our parents. And I think when you have that spiritual connection, it was kind of Marianne Williams you, so says, you've got this light and why are you hiding your light? I think we're kind of scared sometimes of just how powerful we can be uh, and the difference that we can make in the world. And I think when you connect with that awesome power that created everything and realizing that you're part of that, then you really start to step into your greatness and you feel empowered, which is my fifth step, rather than disempowered and looking for mm -hmm. other people and things to make you feel feel powerful. You find this power from within. So I, I totally agree with you, Dr. Campbell, that that spiritual connection um, and you know, sort of re-establishing uh, and finding that for yourself at midlife is really one of the most um, incredible things that you can do on your journey. Yeah, because it all starts, as you say, with authenticity. That's getting rid of the crap, if I may use an everyday word. Um, because nothing can happen while you are, while one doesn't deal with what is. And I think, you know, dragging yourself back is that wonderful piece that I try and um, tell friends and they start sort of waving their head as like, get on with this poem. Um, but from T.S. Eliot, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all ex and at, at the end of all exploring Will be, will be to arrive where we started to know the place for the first time. And that's really a return to self. And I think that's what, I don't think it's clear, that's what you're advocating to get back to your core identity, despite the decades that have changed one. And then 
once that's achieved, I would imagine it's a very strong tropic drive to, to do the same at the spiritual sense, to get back to source. Because um, the, I remember being interested in Zen at college, and I remember reading Alan Watts. He said the word itself, now he's not talking about organized religion. He's talking about the spirituality. He said religion comes from the Latin word to tie back to. And mm -hmm. to tie back to what? It's to the source. And uh, I just feel that this is it's such a game changer in chronic pain where people have who are already religious kind of outsource their stress. Now you can argue how realistic this is, but they sort of submit to, to dealing what is because there is some sort of help. And they say, what do you think about it? I say, I, I say if you've been practicing this, for even a year, never mind your whole life, why would you turn your back on a, such a formidable resource at this time? And uh, it brings us again to transformation. Science is not going to change us. In fact, if any learning changes us, it's probably in the humanities, literature, maybe even art. But spirituality is the only thing left, I think, that can ch change us from basically, to quote you, the mess. I totally agree with us, with it in what we, you know, which is what we found ourselves sort of embedded and enmeshed in today. Yeah, I didn't I, mean I think to sermonize. But... That, no, no, I loved everything you said. And actually, that's one of my favorite quotes. It was my quote in my, my yearbook, you know, when I was 18, oh, really? it sort of really resonated with me. I've just, but that is a big piece. And, and whether you are dealing with midlife or chronic pain, being able to connect with that eternal part of yourself, that observer, yes. that part of you, you know, who was I before my mother was born, right? Before I had a face, whatever that is, but just understanding your place in the, um, in the family of all things. Right. And in even, you know, understanding the, the largeness of it, I think can help with understanding midlife, understanding chronic pain, certainly, um, connecting again with this mindfulness practice where we realize that this moment, it's the only time we're going to have this moment and just how magnificent it is to be human. I mean, the chances of any of us being here are like 400 trillion to one for all of the things that would, that had to line up for, yes. you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years for us to even be here and looking at life, just bringing it around to what you talked about a few times of the miracle that before the 20th century, you know, people didn't live past 55. People right. didn't live into their 80s. And it's a miracle that we're alive and trying to really connect with um, how amazing life is. And I'll just share, you know, I was just diagnosed with cancer and I am going out there and appreciating my life and loving it. I'm not sitting here and worrying and, you know, and ruminating and being upset. I'm going and I'm, if anything, I'm attacking my life with more verve and joy and desire to inspire other people because you really, when you're faced with those kinds of things, you realize just how very short life is for all of us. That's very moving and inspirational, Evan. Thank, thank you for sharing and, and I wish you the best. Um, Thank you. Well, I'm going to be fine. If luckily, no, sure, we do have there sure, is place sure. for science, but yes. still, it gives me a lot more um, compassion for people going through things. But all of us have an expiration date, and I think that that's sort of the spirituality of trying to yes. find 
our connection to the source, to God, to meaning and purpose. And I'm, in the book, I, I do encourage people, if it resonates with you, you know, explore the, the religion of your childhood. I think there is a place for religion in terms of community rituals that help to turn the switch on. But when we are looking to the religion uh, as, as you said, sort of to tying us and, and not realizing that we have access as you know, Jesus said, you know, I and the Father are one. We have access to divinity within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but using, you know, I think there's a, definitely a place for it. And there's so much truth in, in every religion. But finding the truth and finding what works for you rather than feeling like I have to have this in order to be spiritual. You can do at midlife. I think you can really pick and choose. I've had you know people go back and discover their religion of their childhood. I've had people go back and find new religions that work for them. People who are spiritual, decide to be spiritual, but not religious people who, you know, start to practice yoga or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, there's so many different tools out there that you can connect with what lights you up. Yeah, and, and yeah, absolutely. And, and it can be the start of a refound spirituality, whether one stays or not. Um, I mean, the problem, I think, with religion, and, and not every religion, not everyone in religion, of course, it's very broad, includes a lot of people. But there's this notion that you learn about the, the example of choice in your religion uh, to follow, and then you kind of like end up in a doo-wah chorus of a 50s um, pop band, you know, like how wonderful and stuff, rather than try and see how much of those characteristics one can uh, incorporate into one's own life to affect change, no matter how trivial, not trivial, but how small and, and marginal they may be initially. It's that growth factor, like a brain growth factor incorporate the lessons, you know, and, and that's why I like meditation as well as um, anything with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, it slows us down. And when we're living in an agitated, an agitated life, I mean, just if you watch the news, you, you will be agitated. Um, you kind of, one kind of lives on the gas pedal, as you say in the book, and a lot of our choices and viewpoints even especially our viewpoints, I might say, are infused by this panic mode where we start seeing people as more threatening, we give them less uh, tolerance, and we get into a bigger conundrum, if not mess. So uh, I'm a great believer that if we are serious about change, we will look at spirituality. If you've had a bad experience in a religion, you're probably not the first, but don't throw the sort of whole house, never mind the bathtub out with the baby. Yeah, that is I made very that true. one up now, not my yeah. best, but yeah. Um, no, and it's also with the, the point you make too about it's it's a very, if you've seen the movie The Matrix, yes. all of this media um and in all of this screen time that we have is kind of like sucking our consciousness into these screens, mm-hmm. particularly with a lot of you know violent media that is keeping us in fight and flight, just getting back to neuroscience, instead of rest and digest, we are kind of pulled in and it really disconnects us, you know, from our soul in a lot of ways. I mean, people are looking for ways and it, you know, pours us into also consumer culture. We're taught that you are going to be happy if you have this thing, if you, you know, if you eat these foods, if you, food, alcohol, drugs, 
screens, you know, gambling, shopping, all of these things. And then we do these things and we realize, why am I never satisfied? I'm, I'm chasing this stuff or mm. I'm trying to uh, keep myself entertained so I don't have to deal with um, some of the difficulties or, you know, in this sort of, uh, as you said, we're, we see a lot of violence and, and things that are happening in the world that are sucking us in, but that's where we can step away from all of that. And it's, you know, again, don't have to go to church. I mean, one of my favorite churches is just, just going out to the woods and just taking a long walk, yes. hopefully taking my shoes off, connecting with the earth and just realizing that we are part of nature. Um, and that can be one of the most uh, spiritually gratifying things that a person can do. I interviewed Dr. Helm last week who spoke about um, nature deficit disorder that we all mm. have. And uh, I, funny enough, not heard that term. And I go to plenty of MS, um, continuing medical education pieces, uh, a lot of them virtual now, of course. But um, yeah, that, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's realizing uh, when, when we stuck in thing mode or in consumerism, we become more guarded and protective of what we have, you know, because we want to bury our life as a success at some point uh, that, you know, we were here, we were all over the world. We, we had four bucket lists, but at the end of the day, experiences opens you up firstly as a person and uh, to ideas. And it also it makes you more expansive and you become more authentic, I think. And the great success is to explore the spiritual realm, which is like the hero's journey deluxe, in my view. Yes, absolutely. The, just to, yes, to look at look at Joseph Campbell and yes. how we all face our demon moments, and we can choose to really allow them to transform us. Or we can choose to run in the opposite direction, but you know that's that that theme comes up again and again in movies and literature of right. how we're here to transform and grow, and and those harsh, difficult moments are what really connect us with our soul. Yeah, and also attributed to the success of Star Wars trilogy. Yes. <laughs> Um, now, while writing this book, um, given all the research and the toil, there's a lot of work in, in any well-written book um, and reflection, were there any surprising insights, like something maybe that was hiding in plain sight? You know you knew it, but the book, writing the book or the act of writing the book sort of like dumped it on your desk in front of you. Anything yeah, like that? that's such a great question. Well, I would say this is the, the sort of the first thing, first book I've written that's been more memoir-esque. And so that was a little yeah. scary to sort of face that and yes. share my story. Um, and I think the other thing I'm finding interesting is, is about these seven steps and uh, understanding my relationship with each of them and the ones that I'm um, still working on I, and the ones that have been the most important. So the authenticity one has been really coming into my own power of who I am and showing up in the world. And that's been a really uh, wonderful exploration yes. for me personally. The self-compassion piece is something that totally transformed my life. That was really, I would say, the, the 180 degree turn going from self-loathing to self-love that changed mm -hmm. everything for me. And I think the, the piece that um, I'm working on now is really the empowerment piece. That's one that I'm still still trying to understand and work on. That's a little bit edgy for me. And I, and I think something that's been really interesting too is everybody's favorite step or chapter has been the spirituality. 
Um, and for a long time, as I talk about in the book, I was really in a spiritual closet. I've always been interested in spirituality and magic and connecting with spirit. And um, I really hid that for the longest time because I come from a, a scientific family. My father was uh, a researcher, very prominent, worked for a big pharmaceutical company. And I was supposed to be scientific and I sort of hid behind all of these masks for years to sort of hide that. So coming out of my spiritual closet and talking about that and seeing how that connected with people, um, I've been really overwhelmed with a number of people who have loved the book, used the book, written to me, connected with me. So it's been a very overall gratifying experience to uh, giving birth to this book. Yeah, no, I can, I, the authenticity one came through very uh, uh, prominently to me as well, uh, that you, you, you somehow wrote, you know, it, it, your writing reflected that in ways I can't even analyze, but I did get that feel, I have to say. Um, so what has been your most valued life lesson an insight, if you don't mind sharing that, please. Um, life gets better after 50. I mean, even though I've shared my current diagnosis and what's going on in my life, I am at the happiest time I've ever been in my life. Yes, I loved when I was a mom and I adore my children. Um, and that part of my life was really gratifying. But honestly, just from a um, sort of a, if I could, if I could weigh my well-being, I am at such a high level well-being as I'm looking at 60. I'm in a fantastic relationship. I love where I live. I have great friends. I love my career. My health is off the charts, even with my diagnosis. I'm really happy. And so I think that the biggest revelation as I work with, with people is that the best is yet to come. And you know, my, my dad will say this. He says, you know, your, your 60s and 70s are awesome. So I think if we do the transformational work, if we face that dragon, that, you know, that whatever that dragon is for you, if you're listening, whatever you are facing, the dragon is there. It's your biggest teacher. And so if we can face the, the things that we don't like in our lives, really be very um, upfront and, and deal and maybe get some help with it, we really can transform and be incredibly happy and productive and make a huge difference in the world. Because again, if you're listening, you're here for a reason. This world is uh, a mess. There's lots of beauty to it. There's lots of wonder, but it really needs help. And whether that you want to work on, you know, helping people uh, be happy and healthy, helping the, the planet, having more peace in the world, raising money for whatever causes near and dear to your heart, uh, you're here to make a difference and it's never too late to have a new dream to, you know, we've got the rest of your life in front of you. Yeah, that's right. And well, you know, my own feeling is you will get what you, you strongly expect because you've done the work. Right. And I always say that as well, again, to the patient group, I see, um, you know, don't always look and Google the worst things go and see what you want and realistically walk to, uh, work towards that. So um, it's great that you uh, sharing uh, so much of, of your, your personal insights, because I think it, people need, they are moved and people need to get over that initial inertial, inertia block. So um, yeah, it's great. A well, last question, if I may, um, Cynics say that formalized education is often the last to change. 
So can we speed up this process of awareness for, um, you know, this midlife challenge? Do you think it's something that's going to evolve? And, and it seems to be encouraging that the pace has increased. But it's not, I guess it's not something that can be easily taught at school level. There was always resistance to that. So to, to that. But um, I, I guess I'm trying to, I'm kind of answering my own question here, but um, do, do you advocate uh, talk, well, obviously talking to the children. I mean, that's essential, good communication. But is there any caveat about talking age-appropriate stuff, uh, detail in, in a situation like this? Oh, that's a marvelous question. Um, I feel like we all, regardless of our age, our race, our gender, whatever, mm -hmm. we just need to see the divinity in everyone and everything, including ourselves. So yes, kids need to, you know, we have in our culture, this idea that being, being old, aging is, is scary, is it's bad. There's all these stereotypes of what happens with when people are old, but we need to see that we're all human and we're all connected and we're all in this together. So I think that's something that can be taught. I would say the other thing that can really help with education in terms of kids not growing up and hitting midlife and having this crisis is really allowing kids to be themselves, like allowing all of us to be themselves. I mean, I love millennials because they are, especially around all of this, you know, gender identity and things. It's like, I don't want a label. I just want to be me. You don't need to, you know, put a label on me. They just want to be themselves. And I think if we can really empower children to love and respect themselves and respect everyone else and allow them to be themselves and discover what that means. I think we get squashed, right? When we're five, six, seven years old, we know who we are, we know what we love to do. And then we, something happens kind of when we hit the teenage years. I know that was my case, not with everybody, but with a lot of us where we try to please everybody else and we lose ourselves in the process. So if we can support children to learn who they are and who they want to be and in the process also to respect people regardless of you know age race gender uh we will be making radical changes in the world yeah no that's uh, that's a, I, I like that take it certainly it's optimistic and i i i hope for the same ellen thank you ever so much it's been a rare treat and a total feast from my point of view of ideas um, we wish you all the very best. Um, this is Dr. Trevor Campbell signing off from Healthscape. I've been talking with Dr. Ellen Aldertson about her book midlife, uh, regarding midlife challenges. Thank you and good day. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.